Well, it is always a privilege to open God's Word together, and as we did last week, we're going to be looking at a variety of passages uh, this morning. As you know, we are bringing to a conclusion the series we started two months ago now. It's entitled The Death of the King. We've been working our way through John 19, verses 16 through 30. We're seeing the death of Christ from a variety of angles. Why? Because it is that profound Not one angle can exhaust what Christ accomplished on the cross. So we've been looking at it from a variety of ways. And so last week we began the conclusion to this series. We'll bring it to an end this morning. We are in an angle number eight. Angle number eight, and we're calling it the personal application of Christ's cross. The personal application of Christ's cross. This is the necessary conclusion. This is how we must end this series, because what you find throughout the New Testament is that Christ's cross is not only a historical event that took place in the past, but what we see in the New Testament is the cross of Christ, his death is right now in the present, what the Spirit uses to change us and to sanctify us. We put it This way last week, the cross is not only what we rest on for our conversion, though we do that, and you must do that if you will be saved. But the cross is also to be applied daily in our life of spiritual growth, of our life of sanctification. Why? Why? Because the doctrine of Christ's death has a profound impact upon our life. The doctrine of Christ's death has a profound impact upon our life. It is true. The cross of Jesus is the pinnacle of redemptive history. It is a place of penal substitution where Christ was punished for our sin in our place. It is the tree on which Christ offered himself as a propitiating sacrifice, exhausting God's wrath against the sin of those who will believe and be saved. The cross is the place where sinners were redeemed from sin's slavery and reconciled back to their creator. All of that is true. The death of Christ is theologically profound in its accomplishments, its doctrinally weighty in its work sovereignly orchestrated in all of its intricacies. But we cannot stop there. We cannot stop there in our study of Christ's death because Christ's death is also applicational in its effect. So much so it is for our everyday lives. And so this is how we're ending this series. We're looking at seven personal applications, seven New Testament applications of Christ's death, seven applications for our everyday life for us now. We're only able to get through the first three last week. I did not budget my time well last week, left off with one. But you remember last week, application number one, the death of Christ assures us that God will never withdraw his love from his people. It's the first application we drew out. We took this from Romans 5. 
I love the statement, if while we were enemies, if we were in rebellion against God, Paul writes, if while in rebellion we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, there's the cross. Earlier in the passage, Paul connects this death to God's love. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's his love, pinnacle of love. So if God reconciled us when we were his enemies, if in love God sent his son to the cross, here's the application for us now, having been reconciled, we shall be, here's the promise, we shall be saved by his life. Why? Because the same love that sent Christ to the cross is the same love the Father has for his people. The love then is his love for us now. So when we look at the cross, we see that it assures us that God will never withdraw his saving love from his people, led into application number two. Application number two, the death of Christ guarantees our eternal future with Christ. The death of Christ guarantees our eternal future with Christ. And we took this from Romans 9, or Romans 8, rather. Verse 32, we read this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him. Again, there's the cross. He delivered him over. I was bringing us back to death. What the father did, he delivered his son to death. The wages of sin is death. He delivers his son to his own wrath. And the point is, if the father was willing or unwilling to spare his son, is unwilling to withhold his wrath from his son for us, in verse 32, here's the application. How will he not also freely give us all things? Why would the father be unwilling to save us to the end? Here's the logic. If the father did the greater work, if he exhausted his righteous fury against us on Christ, if he did that, then why would he not do the lesser work and bring us into his realm of blessing now that his wrath has been appeased. That's the application from the greater to the lesser. The death of Christ guarantees our eternal future with Christ. And then application number three, we saw that the death of Christ also calms our fears in a world of sin and evil. The death of Christ calms our fears in a world of sin and evil. We drew this from Acts 2, and Acts 4, the application we drew out was this. If the greatest evil which fell upon Jesus is the greatest sin this world has ever seen, if the greatest evil was ordained by God to occur upon his son, then every lesser evil we see around us today has also been decreed and ordained by God. And just like in the cross, it has been decreed for our greatest good, the good of those who love God. This is why when fear consumes us, when anxiety overwhelms us, we don't turn to the news for hope. 
we look back to the cross and we remember that no purpose of God can be thwarted. The death of Christ calms our fears in a world of sin and evil. Brings us to the last four applications we will look at this morning. We'll move now from the general. That was all general. That was all cosmic application. Eternal security, absolute sovereignty, cosmic application. Let's now get to the nitty gritty of our lives. Let's get very personal. Let's get very pointed. And we can't get any more pointed than application, question, application number four. Here it is. The death of Christ destroys selfishness and petty infighting amongst God's people. The death of Christ destroys selfishness and petty infighting amongst God's people. It's sad to say, but unfortunately, this is what churches are known for far too often. Selfishness and infighting, the very two things that literally sap a church of its gospel witness within the world. This is why Paul wrote Philippians chapter 2. Turn there in your Bibles. Philippians chapter 2, let's work our way through this passage. It's written in no uncertain language. There is a command here, Philippians 2. Notice what Paul writes. Do nothing, and allow this to have its all-inclusive force here. Do nothing. No conversation, no action, no disagreement, no decision, no broken relationship. Do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit. So put an end to every form of strife that might permeate a church body. Let every pursuit of self-glory go. Relinquish your sinful clutching of personal preferences and ideas. Let that go. That's the put-off language of sanctification. Put that off. But, continue verse, this is the put on, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That love for one another replace a love for yourself. Adopt Christian consideration. Again, let go of your self-centered focus, verse 4. Do not merely look out, another put off, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but a put on, but also for the interests of others. Fulfill the one another commands that scatter the New Testament. That's the call. And quite frankly, this is a church I think we all would want to be a part of, right? We could call it this, the first selfless church of Mount Vernon. Could even call it this, the first selfless church ever, ever. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, this is the kind of church that rejoiced Paul's heart. He says, make my joy complete by doing this. Rejoice my heart. You can understand why it brought Paul joy, because this is the kind of church that God delights in. Look at verse 1. This is why divine promises are made to this church. It is the selfless church that will receive encouragement in Christ or encouragement from Christ. 
Selfless church that experiences, verse one, consolation of love. That's Christ's loving comfort he gives his people. It's a selfless church that maintains fellowship of or from the Spirit. This is where the Spirit unites his people together in harmony and care. Again, who wouldn't want to be a part of that local assembly? Well, what's the key? How does a local church replace selfishness with love? Does it replace petty infighting with a concern for the interests of others? How does that happen? Answer, it's by returning to the cross. That's how. It's by grasping the cross's profundity and how much the cross cost Christ. That's verse 5. Verse 1 explains the blessings of selflessness. Verses 3 and 4 gives the commands for selflessness. Now verse 5 gives the means for how this selflessness happens. It requires each of us to, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves. Present active imperative. Continually adopt this mindset. And whose attitude are we called to adopt? Continue the verse. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's our model. But note here, it's not the glorious Christ who is our model. It's the humiliated Christ. The crucified Christ. It's the Jesus who, verse 6, although he existed, always existed in the form, the nature of God. Eternity past, he is God. He always enjoyed full deity, always enjoyed eternal praise in glory. That's the Son. And yet, what did he do? He did not Regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He chose not to remain in heaven. Chose not to cling to the honors and privileges of deity. You can see the contrast, stark. For all those who want to cling to their own selfish ambitions, cling to them, hold tight. Verse 3, for who want, all those who want to look out for their own personal interests, that's the clinging, then we must look to Christ, who did not cling. He did the very opposite, the one who refused to cling to his heavenly home, and he did the unthinkable, he emptied himself. And if we are not amazed by that, it means we think too highly of ourselves. He emptied himself. He did not empty himself of deity, but he laid aside those divine privileges he always enjoyed from eternity past. He refused to grasp those. He laid them aside by verse 7, taking the form of a slave. The eternal son becomes a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, here's now the heavenly king, he leaves his castle, comes to earth. Notice verse 8, he humbled himself. Connect that back to verse 3. Humble yourselves. 
Christ is the model. He humbled himself. But no, it's not only a humbling by taking human flesh for himself. It's not only a humbling of taking human limitations. It's even more than that. Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Look back to the cross. There's the humility we're called to have. It's the humility of Christ who's obedient even death to the point of death on a cross. So there are massive Christological implications in this passage. Massive. But note the context here. Paul is not writing for a seminary class to dissect his words theologically. He's writing for a church to put this principle into practice applicationally. And the principle is this. It is only when we recognize the depth of Christ's descent, his descent from heaven, but again, not just to earth, but his descent from heaven to death on a cross. It's only when we recognize the humility of that descent, the selflessness of Christ, to willingly let the glories of God's presence go, to not cling to them. It's only when we feel the weight of the self-sacrificing service he offered not for himself, but for us, his enemies at the time. It is only when we consider the submission to the father he lived and the death he chose and the hell he bore. It is only then will we, back to verse three, connect it. It is only then when we will do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. How could we? It's only then, verse 4, that we will not look out for our own interests, but for the interests of others. It is only then, drop down to verse 14. It's only then that we will do all things without grumbling and disputing. It's only when we feel the weightiness of Christ's descent to the cross that we will, back to verse 1, be blessed and receive the encouragement in Christ, the consolation of love and the fellowship of the Spirit. And let me add here, as Paul concludes, it is only then will we have the gospel impact Christ calls us to have within our community. I venture to say if we are not having gospel impact in our community, it's not because we lack programs. It's because we are not fulfilling what we're called to fulfill here. I say that because of verse 15. It is the selfless cross-applying church that will also, verse 15, prove to be blameless and innocent. We will show ourselves not only to be professors of Christ's gospel, but those who have been truly changed by Christ's gospel. We'll prove ourselves blameless and 
innocent. We'll prove ourselves, continue the verse, to be children of God above reproach. We will have a gospel testimony where? In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's the promise. Among whom, Paul writes, continuing the verse, among whom, the crooked, perverse generation, among whom you will appear, you will shine as lights, gospel lights in this world. But do not miss the connection that the entire passage relate to itself. Selfless love and humble care a lack of grumbling and complaining amongst God's people is what precedes, it is what precedes a living and effective testimony in the world. It's John 13, 35. They will know you're my disciples by your what? By your love for one another. Paul's just simply taking Jesus's words here. But that love, that care, that selflessness, all of that is contingent upon applying the profound humility of Christ's cross. It's applying that to ourselves personally, back up to verse five. This is what drives it. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, where there is division, selfishness within a church, there is always a diminishing of Christ's cross and the world will see it. It is the death of Christ, when rightly applied, when its weightiness is felt, it is the death of Christ that destroys selfishness and petty infighting amongst God's people. Leads directly into application number five. Application number five. If we are going to be a selfless church, then we must be a forgiving church. So here's application number five. The death of Christ fuels our forgiveness and love for one another. The death of Christ fuels our forgiveness and love for one another. So turn back to Ephesians. Turn back. In my Bible, it's one page. So turn back one page in your Bible to Ephesians chapter four at the very end. I want you to notice the command that is given here. Verse 31, Paul writes this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Well, that sounds very similar to Philippians 2. It's the put-off principles. Put all of that away. Strive to do nothing from selfishness. This is always on the part of Paul. His love for the church, his commands to the church. Well, here in Ephesians 4, the selflessness requires two actions. Two actions. Number one, put off all angry, personal relationship-destroying sins. It's verse 31. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. 
Put all of them away. Action number two, put on something. Put on the Christ-like character described in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. And I notice the next, put on, forgiving one another. Next two words are key, just as, just as. And I know what we want Paul to say, just as that person maybe has forgiven me. So that person's my standard. They fail, therefore it gives me room to fail in this. No, just as God in Christ, there's the cross, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Here's the means and here's the model of our forgiveness. And that phrase here, forgiving one another, forgiving each other, it is not the normal word for forgiveness. Paul uses a different word. Why? Because Paul is emphasizing here not a cold transaction of forgiveness. It's not just a cold removal of a sin debt. He is emphasizing a willing and ready and gracious forgiveness. A willingness to extend forgiveness towards one another when we are hurt and sinned against. The present tense here indicates a continual nature of a forgiving spirit. Continual nature, we are unwearying in our forgiveness, long-suffering in our graciousness. We seek to hold no bitterness. We harbor no hostility. which leads again to the how question. So that's the command. It's the call. How though? How, Paul? How is this even possible? Sin hurts. Broken relationships sting. Go back to verse 32. Here's Paul's answer. Remember God's forgiveness of you. Remember the cross. We forgive just as God in Christ at the cross has forgiven you. If you have been forgiven through the cross, then you have the responsibility to model that same forgiveness because of the cross. This is why chapter five begins with the word therefore. Moving to chapter five now. Therefore, having been reconciled, having been forgiven, having experienced salvation, forgiveness, redemption through Jesus' death, therefore, we are to be imitators of who? Of our forgiving God. Be imitators of God who has forgiven you as beloved, forgiven children like father, like son. And how do we imitate our saving God? Verse two, by walking in love. The context here is the love of forgiveness. By walking in this forgiving love, notice the two words again, just as, just as Christ also loved you. 
And what is the pinnacle of Christ's love for us? Next phrase is the giving of himself up for us. That's the cross. Time does not heal interpersonal hurt. Remembering the cross does. One commentator wrote this. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is set forth as a paradigm of the lifestyle to which believers are to conform. It's the just as. So the question for us is this, are we living a lifestyle of forgiveness based upon Christ's forgiveness of us? Or are we harboring bitterness, refusing to forgive, in effect, forgetting Christ's death on our behalf? Again, the logic of Paul's application here. If we truly feel the weight of the punishment Christ endured for us, if we truly recognize the graciousness of the cross for us, then holding on to the sin others have committed against us is an impossibility. It's the parable of the king who forgives the servant. Refusing to model the same graciousness we have been shown is unfeasible if we understand and feel the weightiness of the forgiveness we enjoy. So let's put it this way. The reason we do not forgive one another is not because the sin that has been committed against us is too great. That's not the reason. The reason we do not forgive one another is because our understanding of the cross is too small. Where there is a lack of love amongst God's people, where there's a failure to forgive one another, there is a deficient understanding of Jesus' death. Because of the application point, it is the death of Christ that fuels our love and forgiveness for our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's in application number six. Application number six. The death of Christ gives us eternal eyes and a gospel message. So let's move now out of the family of God into the world. Application six, the death of Christ gives us eternal eyes and a gospel message. Continue turning back in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to notice how Paul begins in verse 14. It's going to begin with love, the love of Christ. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. The love here Paul is talking about is not our love for Christ, but Christ's love for us. Specifically, his love that led him to the cross. We see that finishing verse 14. This is the love that caused Christ to die for all, all kinds of sinners, all kinds of people. This is a dying love. 
And the word control here, strong word, it means to drive, compel, motivate. It's the self-sacrificing, saving love of Christ that gives us a new purpose to live. It motivates us. It's the cross that gives us new goals to achieve. Goals described at the end of verse 15. Here's the main goal. To no longer live for ourselves. It's Philippians 2. Ephesians 4, to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who what? Who died. There's the cross. Who died and rose again on our behalf. It's the same logic. It's the same application. The more we understand and grasp and cherish and are humbled by Christ's wrath enduring death, the more we will live not for ourselves but for our Savior, for his gospel. When we recognize the profundity of the cross, everything changes. Everything changes. Look at verse 16. Therefore, from now on, the sacrificing love of Christ controls us when we have a new motivation in life. From now on, we are given a new set of eyes. We recognize no one according to the flesh. When we truly cherish the cross, we no longer see people as simply neighbors or temporal beings. We see them as eternal souls. This is what the cross teaches us. What are the lessons from the cross? One of the lessons is this, sin is real. Sin is real and it must be punished by God. It's a lesson. And that divine punishment will either fall upon the sinner forever in hell or divine punishment will fall upon Christ as that sinner's substitute. That's what the cross teaches us. We are either an enemy of God or a friend of God. Drop down to verse 18. God has either reconciled us to himself through Christ, through the death of Jesus, or God's wrath hangs over our head and is poised to fall at any moment. It's only two sides. We're given new eyes. We see things different. We see people differently. Why? Because the cross is controlling us and thus we're humbled. Verse 18, continue it. We're humbled. Now all these things, all these blessings of salvation, all this reconciliation, redemption through the work of Christ, all these things are from God. Our salvation is his doing. In grace, he reconciled us to himself again through Christ. We're humbled by this. Amazed at this grace. That's why we gladly welcome our new purpose, our new goals in life. Cross tells us that we have a primary calling. And that primary calling is at the end of verse 18. It is the ministry of what? Reconciliation. Again, why? 
because we know what's at stake. Why? We're recognizing no one according to the flesh. Why? Because the sacrificing love of Christ is controlling and motivating us. So we receive that primary calling. Look at verse 19. Recognize that the Father has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That is the word of the cross. And thus we cannot stay silent. Verse 20, we are ambassadors, representatives of Christ. We are brothers and sisters within the church. We are ambassadors of Christ when we leave. So much so, it is this, continue as though God were making an appeal through us. That is why we beg, entreat, implore the sinner. There's desperation, there's urgency. Again, go back to verse 14. Love is controlling us. We have eternal eyes. Thus we beg on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our goal. That's our calling. That's our identity. Well, the cross also gives us our message, verse 21. Here's our message. Here's our plea. He, it's God the Father, made him who knew no sin. This is the unblemished lamb of God, the sinless son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So mark this. When the sacrificing love of Christ controls our words, we are not shy to talk about sin. We are not fearful to talk about the sinner's desperate need for a savior. We are not bashful about God's anger. We explain how helpless the sinner is in order to be reconciled back to God. We explain our need for Christ's righteousness is how desperate we are. Christ's righteousness to come to us. We explain the need for our sin to be punished by the Father in full. Again, verse 21, how Christ needed to be sin on our behalf. All that is desperation of the sinner, grace of God. And then we proclaim grace and mercy so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin on Christ, his righteousness to us. That's the message of salvation. It is not Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Who's going to say no to that? It is this. This is the message of reconciliation. And this is the message of our mouth. It's the message of eternal hope. But notice the connection back to verse 14. Only if we are controlled by the sacrificing and saving love of Christ. Only when we feel the weight of that and see the cross's profundity. Application number six, the death of Christ gives us eternal eyes and a gospel message. And then finally, application number seven, 
Let's end here. And this is appropriate as we move into the Lord's table. We're moving from our witness to the world to now our own obedience, our own holiness of life. Application number seven, the death of Christ reveals just how heinous sin actually is. The death of Christ reveals just how heinous sin actually is. I know why you sin. Because I know why I sin. We sin because we belittle sin's seriousness. Just boil it down to that. We sin because we belittle sin's seriousness. But when we are thinking about the cross, we are considering the cost Christ paid, the pain he suffered, the wrath he bore, the forsaking he experienced, we cannot belittle sin's seriousness. We are given a living picture of how serious sin actually is. Let me give you this one verse and we'll conclude here. Titus chapter two in verse 12. He's talking about the grace of God, the grace of God on the cross. And Paul writes this, the cross of Christ is what instructs us, teaches us, educates us, warns us. Cross of Christ instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. It is the cross that calls us to not believe sin's lies. To not belittle sin's seriousness, to remember sin's heinousness. Think of that picture of Jesus. Think of the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think of the darkness that falls on him. Remember what sin actually cost Christ as he hung on that tree and you will not belittle sin's seriousness. Just think about how many temptations we would not fall into if we would remember the pain sin cost our Savior. There are many other applications the New Testament draws from Christ's cross. Many, these are only seven. But we end here so that we remember how central the cross is, not only in our conversion, but also for our sanctification. The cross is not something we can move on from as believers. I got it. I know it. Let's move on to bigger and better things. But how we must always look back to this Trinitarian work of salvation, which when truly cherished, it changes everything about us. Give thanks for the cross daily. Read the gospel accounts of the cross often. Sing about the cross. Guard against becoming too familiar with the cross. Confess any coldness towards the cross. Delve into the theology of the cross. Put into practice, actively, put into practice the application of the cross. But also come together the first Sunday of every month as we celebrate the cross. We think back on it. We see that it is our life. We celebrate the cross as a church family.
Father, I pray that our hearts would be readied to remember the sacrifice of Christ, to rejoice in your grace, to confess our sin, to remember your mercy, and to cherish your love, your saving love for your people. Pray as we take of these elements that we come before you with hearts that are humbled by the gravity of our sin and the height of Jesus' sacrifice. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.